Please be seated. Well, with the, the season of Advent beginning, we're starting a new series called The Long-Awaited Advent. And in this series, we're looking at four theological virtues that the historic church have recognized as things that are deeply associated with the coming of Jesus. As Jesus comes and brings his authority to, to our lives and to Chicago and makes all things new, he brings with him uh, four things. Uh, he brings with him hope and peace and joy and love in their fullest form. And we wait longingly for all four of those virtues, not only for our own personal life, but for our city um, and, uh, and for our relationships. And so what we're doing is we're looking at four different apostles. What do, what do Peter and Paul and James and John have to say about these four theological virtues? So to bring us uh, a teaching from First Peter uh, to talk about a long-awaited hope, we have with us uh, Brett Kroll. Brett Kroll is here from Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, where he serves as a curate. Um, and a curate is an Anglican word for someone who's in an intensive ministry residency. You're actually hired by the church, given all kinds of ministry responsibility, and also given oversight, something that I really experienced and benefited from in my own preparation for ministry. Um, Brett is uh, one of Church of the Resurrection's preachers, and he's a, he's a good friend of mine and of Emmanuel. So um, thank you so much, Brett, for coming, and I want to invite you on up to teach from First Peter. Thanks, Father Aaron, and greetings all. Um, I bring greetings from Resurrection. And some of you I, I knew when you were there sojourning um, in, in the western suburbs, uh, coming all the way out from uptown, the Radekees. I remember you guys making that trek. Uh, Julie and I were driving in this morning. That's my wife, Julie, up there. Simon, does that mean I'll wave everybody? Yeah, we're driving and saying, wow, they did this for how many years? Like 23 years or something like that? <laughs> Every week got to resurrection, so it's a joy to get to come back. Uh, I think I haven't been here since August of, of 14, so many new faces here. Um, but I bring you greetings from resurrection. So glad to be with you here on this uh, first day of the new Christian year. So yes, as Father Aaron said in the beginning, happy new year, everybody. Uh, but of course, it's Christmas all around. We've now passed Thanksgiving, and so the shops are up, the lights are up, and the anticipation of what's waiting under the Christmas tree is beginning to swell in the hearts of young children everywhere. I must confess, though, that I've never been one to put a whole lot of hope in what is waiting for me under the Christmas tree. I've never been a super big gift guy, except for one year. I was in college. And I was uh, in a relationship that was starting to crumble, go south, right before Christmas time. And of the many presenting issues that this relationship had, one of our presenting issues was a difference in our sense of fashion. Basically, she had one. <laughs> I'm still pretty clueless. Most days, I don't dress myself. And when I do as often as not, it's back to the closet when Julie sees me. Uh, one of the great things about being ordained is I don't have to pick out what I wear, at least on Sunday. All right, so at the time for my winter coat, I was wearing this big white puffy down coat. It's really warm and apparently very outdated, not cool anymore. Uh, and so I was gently told that it would benefit me and probably our relationship if for Christmas I got one of those kind of button-down charcoal-colored peacoats, those dress coats. 
So I called mom on the phone and explained to her what I needed for my Christmas present. And as this relationship was starting to crumble and fall apart, a lot of my hopes began to rest on that charcoal-colored people. <laughs> Christmas Day came. I opened up the present, and inside was like a brand new ski jacket. Zipper down the front. <laughs> it was crestfallen. It was crushed. It was the only time in my life I ever asked to have a present taken back. Mom, can we take this back? It's, it's actually not the one that I need. She was great about it, so we went back and we got the right coat, right? So now my hope, again, is, is, is lifted up. Now my, my relationship will be restored. Uh, get back to school, and after about three or four weeks, the relationship kind of fizzles out. So much for those hopes. The hope of the coat is crushed. And I ended up getting it anyway, but then the greater, more important hope that that relationship would work out, it didn't. And yes, as Father Aaron said, today we are talking about hope. That's what the sermon is about. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, yes, I thank you for your words in the gospel today to stay awake to not be weighed down by the cares of the dissipations of this life. And I pray that you would be present with us now in my words, in the words of your scriptures, to teach us to hope for things that are truly worth hoping for. Please order our hope rightly this morning. I ask in your precious name. Amen. So our sermon is on hope. We'll be working out of that First Peter text. There in verse 3. The Apostle says we've been born again to a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we use the word hope all the time. Hope the Bears win today, or I hope Star Wars Episode 7 lives up to all the hype, or I hope I don't have rabies, right? We, we use the word <laughs> hope all the time, but really, the word means wish, I would wish that the Bears would win today. Actually, I'm a Packers fan, but I... Sorry. Well, I shouldn't have said that. Well, that's it for me. I would wish that in my life I would never contract rabies, but we don't know for sure. Bears might not win today. I might get rabies at some point. There's a level of uncertainty in all of the things that we put our hope in. And yet, the language of the scriptures, when it's talking about hope, is something very different because it is something that is certain. It's hope with a capital H, not hope with a lowercase h. The difference between all of the things that we put hope in in this life and in this world and the hope that is in Jesus Christ is the hope that is in Jesus Christ is certain. And this passage here in 1 Peter also teaches us that our Christian hope has its roots in the resurrection of Jesus and its fruits are in his return, his coming again to this earth. Let me say that again. The roots of Christian hope are in the resurrection of Jesus. The fruits or the reward of our hope will be at the last day when he comes again. So looking back to that past event of the resurrection, looking forward to his coming again, we stand between those two pillars, and on these pillars hang Christian hope. The entirety rests upon the resurrection and the return of Jesus. And at the end of his passage... In verse 8, Peter has this wonderful phrase. It says, even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. 
and inexpressible joy is the reward. And what we're going to talk about today, kind of the big idea of the sermon is simply this, that rightly ordered hope leads to inexpressible joy. Rightly ordered hope. Because, of course, there's a way to order our hope wrongly. And if we do that, it leads to that roller coaster up and down of will it happen or will it not? And if it does, will it meet my expectations? And, and how long will it last before the glory fades? And as often as not, when we hope for things in this life, it leads to disappointment and sometimes even despair, not joy. If hope is such a roller coaster, why, why do we hope at all? Why are we hope factories? Why are we hope machines constantly hoping for things? We can't help it because we desire something better. This may be a little bit simplistic, but why do we hope? We want something better. What do we hope for? Something better. That's the nature of hope. It's like when you're flipping through the channels on the TV for like three hours, thinking, ah, oh, maybe there's something better. Flip to the next channel. Flip to the next channel. Right? You're, you're looking for that something better. Usually it doesn't happen. Okay. TV is one thing. What about the story I shared earlier? Hope in a relationship. I would be surprised if some of you today are, are hoping to find love. Maybe hoping... This year you'll find a spouse. Others might be hoping maybe this month will be the month we get pregnant. Maybe this month. Maybe this month until it hurts almost too much to keep hoping. Some of you are fighting long-term chronic illness. You're hoping for a better treatment. Turn the corner. Some of you are hoping to find a job where you can finally put your passions and your gifts and your talents to work in a way that doesn't leave you feeling drained at the end of the day, but is actually life-giving. You're hoping for that. Some of you are hoping for financial stability. Some of you are hoping for your marriage to have a turnaround, change, hoping for a good marriage. Maybe that your kids will get to the right schools. I mean, anything. There are a number of things that we can hope in. And here's the thing. That list that I just mentioned... Those are all good things. Those are all good things. None of them are bad things to hope for. You're not hoping for the death of your enemy, right? We're hoping for good things. And yet, if any of those good things gets invested with a level of hope that is meant for Christ alone, that's when it leads to that disappointment and that despair and that uncertainty. If we place ultimate hope in any of these, get ready to ride the roller coaster. I can laugh now, looking back on that relationship, but at the time, both when I opened that present and then, of course, when the relationship crumbled before me, it was devastating. I was crushed. And I did learn the hard lesson of what happens when I placed, which I did, placed my security, my sense of personal value, my hope for better things. So many of those things were slowly getting transferred from the Lord into that relationship, and when it all fell apart, I saw the empty void that was left behind, and it stung, it hurt badly. It led me to great despair. But rightly ordered hope leads to inexpressible joy. So if we make Jesus our great and ultimate hope, we will never be disappointed. We will not be disappointed in the end. Disappointments will come, Jesus will even bring some of them himself. Here's a disappointment for you. Peter tells us these happen 
so that we might be tested in the genuineness of our faith. So disappointments do come, but in the end, anyone who hopes in Jesus Christ will never be put to shame, as we read in the Psalms today. So how, how do we get there? How do we order our hope rightly? Well, as I said, Christian hope has the roots in the resurrection of Jesus. It has its fruits in the return of Jesus Christ. So as we look to our passage here in 1 Peter, we'll see more what that means. So in verse 3, he calls our hope a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So why does the apostle, first of all, call our hope a living hope? And, and why is it because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? He calls it a living hope because it is a hope that is alive. Again, forgive me if this is a little bit simple in, in the math and the logic, but Jesus is our hope. Jesus is alive. Therefore, our hope is alive. Our hope is a living hope. More importantly, because Jesus was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago, that past event has relevance for today because it means he can come and meet us now today, which of course, if he had not been raised from the dead, he could not do. When somebody dies, the great grief is that you cannot create new memories. You can derive joy only from the memory of them. But you can't call them up and say, let's, let's go grab a coffee. Let's go down and walk the beach, Lake Michigan. Let's go play tennis at the gym. You can't do that because they are dead. Jesus is alive. He was raised from the dead. And because he is our living Lord, he can come to us now and in any moment and give us that living hope. We have a living hope because we have a living Lord. And because he is alive forever, he will always be available to us to come to him, to meet with him, and be filled with that inexpressible joy. This is why if we place ultimate hope in anything else of this life, it will fail us at the end. Because nothing in this world lasts forever. You get that job you're hoping for, it will not last forever. Even if you have that job till the day you die, which is unlikely... It will not last forever. The day you die, it's over. It's done. Same with anything else that we could put our hope in. Again, good things. Yet none of them have that ultimate, lasting power. But because, as Paul says, Christ died once for all to sins, and now because he has died, he will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He is alive. He is alive forevermore. And so our hope is also now a forever hope. And we can meet Jesus anytime. It's why we come to church. It's why you have the closet, that prayer closet, that quiet space where you can meet the Lord in His Word, where you can meet Him in the place of prayer, where you can come to Him and, and say, come fill me with that joy. Restore to me the joy of salvation. You can do that because He was raised from the dead. The resurrection makes our hope a living hope. This is also why these marvelously encouraging words in verse 8, where Peter says, Though you have not seen him, you love him, but you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible joy. Peter, one who has seen 
Jesus is writing to those who had not seen Jesus. He's writing to Christians in uh, the mid-century, first century in Turkey, northern Turkey. None of them, most likely, had ever met the Lord Jesus. They had not seen him, I should say. Let me correct that. They had not seen the Lord Jesus as Peter had, and yet they had met him. So they know what he's talking about when he says, you're filled with inexpressible joy. They know that living hope because they've encountered the living Lord. Why else does the resurrection make our hope a living hope? It makes it a living hope because this hope is filled with life. It's living hope. It's filled with life. So let's talk about life, the life that the resurrection brings. By the resurrection of Jesus, he destroys death so that any who follow him, who believe in him, will not be chained by death as we would be apart from him. So the resurrection destroys death. It gives us life. Jesus said, this is why I came. Do you remember the story when he meets the Samaritan woman at the well? And they're out there and they're talking about the water and he points to the water and he says, if you drink this water, you will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give, they will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in you a spring of life, welling up to even eternal life. So Jesus says, the reason I came was to give life. But we might wonder, what kind of life? When he says, I give you life, what is he talking about? Is he, is he simply talking about this life that we are now experiencing, that we are living, just going on and on and on forever? I must confess to you, sometimes that thought scares me. I don't think I could handle that. Is that the life that he's giving us? Just simply life without end? Is that all it is? Or is there more to it? Now in verse 3, when he says, we have been born again to a living hope, He's saying this, the first time we were born, we were born not into a living hope. We were born into an inheritance of death. That was our inheritance. But the birth that comes through Jesus Christ, that is a spiritual birth, it is a new kind of life. Being born again in Jesus Christ, he says, now you have an inheritance of life. And what kind of life? His very own life. The eternal life, the eternal joy, the eternal love of the Son of God. That love and that life that was there untouched in perfection before all things began. That's the life that he came to give us. So, like when you say, oh, I felt so alive that day. Or I feel so alive right now. Were you technically biologically any more alive at that moment than you were at other moments in your life? No. What are we talking about when we say, I felt so alive that day? We're talking about something in our soul that happened. We're talking about a fullness in our soul that we receive. That fullness, that's what we're talking about when we say he has come to give us a new life, a new kind of life, a life that is different and better even than the life that we are now experiencing. We talk about eternal life, and, and I wonder if it would help us sometimes to think of eternal life as not only being eternally long, unending, but also eternally deep. Mm. 
So that when we say that, oh, I felt so alive, take that feeling, multiply that times infinity. That's the new life that Jesus came to give us. That's the life that he let go of on the cross when his blood and his life was poured out. He let go of his life so that you could grab hold of it. So in the resurrection, Jesus brings us a hope that is full of life. Life with a capital L. All right, so we've talked about the resurrection. We've talked about why looking to that past event helps us kind of ground and root our hope, our Christian hope, in certainty. But now let's look ahead to the return of Jesus. How does his coming again also fill our hearts with hope? Hope with a capital H. Hope that will not disappoint. When I say that Christian hope has its roots in the resurrection, but its fruits in the return of Jesus, it means that the greater part of our reward, the fruit of our faith, the greater part of our reward is yet to come. Sure, we've begun to taste a little bit. As, as Peter says, you rejoice and you are even now obtaining the outcome of, of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. But the teaching of, of the New Testament is very clear that the greatest part of this hope and this life and this joy is yet to come. And the Lord Jesus brings it with him when he comes at the last day. And so here in this passage, he refers to that, that second coming. In verse 4, he talks about that salvation that's guarded in heaven for you. But he says, that will be revealed in the last time. The last time referring to the end of days, the end of this history. And it is a point worth making that this world and this history will have a final day when Jesus returns in a very clear way. When he came the first time as a baby, it was hidden. Only a few shepherds and some magi and his mother and earthly father knew. Yet when he comes again, it will be for all to see. And Peter says... At that last time, or what he calls, at the end of verse 7, he calls it the revelation of Jesus Christ. When that happens, every eye will see, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So at the return of Jesus, that is when our hope is beginning to be fulfilled. I love the, the gospel passage. Lift up your heads, for your redemption is drawing near. Uh, a couple months ago, my one-year-old Simon was unloading the dishwasher on the floor, um, and Teresa, my three-year-old at the time, was being very distressed about it. She said, Papa, Simon is unloading the dishwasher all over the floor. And I looked at it, and I said, Teresa, it's just a couple of spoons on the floor. It's not the end of the world. My three-year-old twin sister, who was watching the whole thing, said, yeah, Teresa, that's not the end of the world. The end of the world is when Jesus comes back. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's true. And it does remind us that, yes, if we place our ultimate hope in the return of Jesus, then spoons falling on the floor it cannot ultimately wreck us. It cannot ultimately thwart our joy and our hope. And I love uh, in Hebrews... The writer of Hebrews is talking about Abraham and the other great heroes of the faith. And he says this, all of these heroes, they died in their faith, not having received the things promised, 
But having seen them, I love this, having seen them and greeted them from afar. They saw what they were hoping for. Having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Just a note about 1 Peter. 1 Peter is all about exile. He's writing and he uses the language of exile. He says, remember your exiles. Remember your foreigners. Remember you do not ultimately belong here. This is not your home. So again, the writer of Hebrews, they acknowledge they were strangers and exiles on this earth. For people who do and say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they'd been thinking of the land where they came from, they could have returned. But instead, as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them city. A few chapters later, he goes on to say, for here we have no lasting city. So let us seek the city that is to come. Christian hope is fueled as we look forward. And part of this rightly ordering of our hope is recognizing that, yes, I must rightly order my hope and look forward to the coming of Christ. But if I'm honest with you, when I wake up in the morning, most times I'm looking forward to that cup of coffee. Amen? Yeah. And again, coffee is a great, wonderful, good gift. Not a problem that we enjoy and, and like coffee. But it is revealing, isn't it, that I find more hope and consolation and excitement around that cup of coffee in the morning or that second one after lunch that will get me through the afternoon much more than I do about the coming of Christ. I mean, honestly... Do you daily think about Christ's return? Do you daily think about Jesus returning to this earth as you daily think about your cup of coffee or whatever it might be? Again, not to make you feel ashamed for liking coffee, but to simply say, perhaps we ought to change our hope patterns a little bit more and think a little more often and hope a little more often in ultimate things, the return of Christ, and enjoy that Freshly brewed intelligentsia medium roast while you do it. The reason we do this is because Peter talks about what is to come. And the language he uses is that of inheritance. He says, You've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and un." fading. Now if you think about an inheritance, an inheritance is a gift. It's not something you can work for. It's not something you could earn. It's something you're born into. And the richer, the wealthier your parents, the greater your inheritance will be. The more you have to look forward to when you receive that inheritance. Let me tell you something. You have a heavenly father who is rich beyond imagination. He owns everything that is. He owns all the heavens and the earth. The known universe is his creation. And if you hope in Jesus Christ, your inheritance is greater than even that. Greater than even the created universe as it is now. You will share in a greater inheritance to come. And it's a gift to you. You were born into it by your faith. It's not something you could have possibly worked for or earned. And yet... It is yours. 
And it's not an inheritance of death, as we said earlier. It's an inheritance of life. And the three words that he uses to describe this inheritance, imperishable, meaning it will not decay. And I love the language of Paul when he says, in this life, we long to be clothed with immortality. We long for what is mortal to be swallowed up by life so that what is perishable may be clothed with that which is imperishable, will not decay. And Peter says it's undefiled. There's nothing broken or crooked or off about it. There's nothing that would make you recoil. It's pure. It's lovely, this inheritance that you are receiving. We had an experience of defilement this summer. We had a trip away uh, up to the north woods of Wisconsin for two and a half months. When we came back, we found out that our, our Jetta, that had been sitting in the garage, had been totaled. I'm probably the only man in the world who has accomplished uh, being able to total my car from 400 miles away. It was filled with mold and growing everywhere. You opened the door, you couldn't even breathe. It was disgusting. It was defiled. And our inheritance in heaven is undefiled. Not a spot, not a blemish. And he says it is unfading. Let's consider that for just a moment. Unfading. You know, I think sometimes we're afraid to hope in heaven. Because our experience in this life is that hope fades. And glory fades. Right? You're a little kid. Christmas is awesome. What happens when you get older? It fades, doesn't it? Even the greatest marriage imaginable, if your hope is having that marriage, that, that love relationship that is so fulfilling... Even those butterflies eventually go away. You give place to a more substantial love, I would say. But that too fades. Everything in this life fades. And I wonder if sometimes we are afraid to hope for heaven because we think, uh, we just assume it's got to be the same. We'll get there and then we'll be like, now what? Forever. And it's going to fade. I mean, honestly... Don't you think about that sometimes? And yet God is reaching from that place, that place of eternity, that place of complete love and fullness. And through his word, he's reaching out to us today. He's giving us a word to hang on to. He's saying, unfading. It will not fade. And though I cannot explain to you how that is, or why that is, or I can't tell you more about it except to say, unfading. It will not fade. Heaven won't be boring. If you've ever worried that, which I know you have, because I have too, it will not be. It will not fade. And we can't wrap our minds around it. This is the mystery of eternity. We can't get there. And yet, what we can believe is that it is unfading. So in this you rejoice, Peter says in verse 6. In this you rejoice. Don't rejoice ultimately in that cup of coffee. Don't rejoice ultimately if she says, yes, I will marry you, or if you get that job or that promotion. You can rejoice, but ultimately rejoice in this, the resurrection and the return of Jesus. So we look forward. When we were uh, engaged, the summer before we were engaged, actually, Julie and I were apart for three months, and I was painting that summer. Not like Van Gogh, like I was rolling out cinder block walls, white. Everything I painted that summer was white. 
And the day before I left to go see her for the first time in three months, my boss said, hey, Brett, I got a job I need you to do. So I hopped in the truck, drove to the, to the house where one of our other guys, who was like a fast painter, said, Sergio painted the house, and it's all painted and done, but we need to move him on to the next house, so we need you to do the cleanup. And around this house was like this mulch moat, like this moat of wood chips. And the paint chips were in the wood chips, stuck in there. The only way you could get them out was by picking them out one by one with your fingers. And the boss dropped me off and said, all right, have two. I said, okay. It was the most menial task I'd been given that entire summer, and perhaps in my entire life, I don't know. And yet, because I knew that within 24 hours, I would be on a plane to see my beloved, that this drudgery would soon pass, and that I would be in the presence of one that I loved. It was all right. In fact, I worked really hard that day. I worked really fast. I picked up those paint chips and I hummed along because I knew what was coming the next day. And that's just a small picture of how that inexpressible joy can conquer our trials. It can conquer the things that would weigh us down, the dissipation and the cares of this life. And so we come back to the question, well, what about those other hopes? What about hoping for children? What about hoping to find love? What about that job? Is there a place for that? And the answer is yes. As long as there are good things that you're hoping for, and not the death of, of Aaron Rodgers, as long as you are hoping for good things, it is okay to hope for them, but beware that you never place ultimate hope. The way to think about that is with earthly hopes, hold them loosely. They might come. They might not. You might get that job and find out, oh, there's things about this job that I don't like after all. And that glory will fade. So with all earthly hopes, whatever you might be setting your hope on, just remember, it will fade. It may or may not come to pass. Hold it loosely. And rejoice if it does come to pass. And thank God for his good gifts. Hold it loosely. Hold firmly to the hope of heaven that is rooted in the resurrection, and that is coming when he returns to this earth in glory. As you come to the table today, I would encourage you to pray this prayer. It comes from Psalm 51. Whether you're in a place of actually needing belief to begin with, you're not sure you believe in the resurrection or the return of Jesus, or whether you do believe, but maybe you're sensing, yeah, I, I think I have some disordered hope. I think I've been placing security or finding my own personal value or my hope for better things in earthly things and not ultimate things. If you're saying, yeah, th th that might be me, then come with this prayer. Restore to me the joy of salvation. That's something ultimate, isn't it? Restore to me the joy of salvation. And Jesus, would you order my hope? Because here's, here's the secret to all of this. Is you and I actually can't do this on our own. We can't put our own hope in order. We need the Lord Jesus who sees rightly. We need him to do that for us. And if you ask him to do that, just say, Lord, would you restore to me the joy of salvation? And would you order rightly all my hope? He will answer that prayer. So as you come to the table, come with that exchange. I give you all my hopes. Restore to me the joy of salvation and order my hope. And it's my prayer for you that you would then be led
degree by degree by degree into that inexpressible joy. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I thank you for your son Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection that gives us a living hope. A hope that is fully alive with a life that is new. It is not only unending, it is not only eternally long, it is eternally deep. I thank you, Lord, that we can look forward to your coming again, to an inheritance that is rich. It is not fading. It's not defiled. It's imperishable. We thank you that you have given this to us as a gift, and we receive that, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you'd have mercy on us for all the ways that we make idols out of good things, and we place ultimate hope in things that are not ultimate. Forgive us, Lord, and today, now, in this place, would you come and transform our hearts, transform our hope, open our eyes to see ultimate things. Restore to us the joy of salvation. Restore to these brothers and sisters of mine the joy of salvation and order our hope rightly. We ask you to do this for the glory of your name, for the honor of your name, and we ask it through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.